Let's grab a Bible right out of the gate. We're going to get down to work, okay? Grab a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, some in the chairs. If you don't own one, take that with you. If you don't have a newer translation, that's yours. Put your name in. It's our gift to you. You can have it. But I want you to turn to 1 Peter. Go to chapter 2. If you're not sure where 1 Peter is, I would just look on the table of contents. That's what I would do if I was you. Uh, it's the easiest way to find it. Lay that open in your lap. And then in your program, there should be a little note page, uh, uh, a little piece of paper that has some fill in the blanks, get a pen, lay that in your lap. There's some things we're going to talk about that I think are important and some notes that I think you're going to want to write down that are going to be important. In fact, I would tell you this. Can I just tell you, tell you this right out of the gate? I am jacked up about this sermon, okay? So whether you are or not, I don't know, but I'm so excited. I've already done it twice, going to do it another time after this. But I think, okay, you're used to tell, hearing, me, hearing me say this, I think this could change your life, right? I think this could change our church. I think if this what we're going to talk about today explodes into your heart. It will change your life. And so I'm excited to share it with you this morning. We've been asking the question, who do you think you are? Who in the world do you think you are? And we said the reason that question is important is because when I know who I am, then I'll know what to do. That's why the question is important. When I know who I am, then I'm going to know what to do. Basically, my identity is what drives my behavior. The reason that's important in this room is this, is that we all come from different stories and there's some of us in this room we're trying to find ourselves. We don't know who we are. So that's why we say we're trying to find ourselves, figure out who we are. There's others of us. We grew up in church and we've been doing things, but we don't know why we've been doing them. So we know what to do. We don't know why we're doing them. We don't know who we are. There's others of us, quite frankly, that we're trying to run from an identity someone else put on us, our peers or our parents or whatever it might be. There's some of us that are confused because culture wants to tell us who we are. Culture wants to tell us, here's what it means to be successful. Here's what it means to be smart. Here's what it means to be pretty. Here's what it means to be a man or a woman or whatever it might be. And so we're confused because I don't know who I am, right? And then I said this last week, there's some of us in the room, we forgot who we were. At one time, we knew who we were. We were kind of tracking along just fine. But somewhere along the way, we forgot who we are. Let me tell you this. I'm going to tell you something about God's word, okay? I want you, this is for free. has nothing to do with what I was going to say uh, later. But God's word is filled with God telling us who we are. To change the way you read the Bible. The Bible is not just a book that tells us what to do. Some people say, read the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. Okay, sounds cool. It matches the acronym, all that. But the Bible is God telling us who we are. In fact, if you read the Bible, you'll see God saying, those who've said yes to Jesus, we're a special possession, his special possession. We're trophies of grace. We're a poetic masterpiece. We're members of his family. We're members of his body. We are his ambassadors. We're co-workers with God. We are free. We're bought with a price, justified. We, we are people who literally have access to God. That's what the Bible says. It tells us this is who you are. That's why when you get to what's laid open in your lap, First Peter, okay, First Peter is just not a book in the Bible. That's not just what it is. It's written by a real guy. It's a letter, and it's written to real people. And these people, we said this both weeks in this series already, these people have had the legs kicked out from underneath of them. And Peter wants to remind them of who they are. He wants to remind them of who they are. And so the first two weeks, we just cherry-picked two of those identities, two things that Peter wants to make sure they know. That when they've said yes to Jesus, first is this, he wants them to know you're not who they say you are, you're not even who you say you are, but you, if you've said yes to Jesus, you are a child of God. You're part of the family of God. That was the first week. That literally we are children of God and he wants us to know that you're secure, that you can know you belong, that even hard times are going to make you better. And if you're a child of God, best is yet to come. Not only that, you're always growing, you're always maturing, and you're part of this really, really big family. And the family trait is love. You're a child of God. But last week, we said Peter took it a step further, and he said, hey, listen, I want you to know this, that, that Jesus is precious. And for everybody who don't just, they're not just, they're not just curious about him, they don't just follow his example, but for everybody who acknowledges Jesus is precious because he took their place, everybody who acknowledges that goes from being a dead rock to a living stone that you're a living stone and Jesus is building this church not with bricks and mortar but with people. And the moment I acknowledge Jesus as precious, I line my life up on Jesus. Why? He's the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. And when I line my life up with Jesus, I'm, I'm in this kind of crazy, mysterical, mysterious, uh, beautiful, unbelievable way. I'm linked to a whole bunch of other people and I become living space for God. 
I'm a child of God and I'm a living stone. Peter wants to go a step further. Peter wants to go a step further. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. If you don't feel comfortable using a Bible, I'll read with you on the screen, okay? Here's what it says. As you come to him, the living stone, that's who? That's who? Out loud, need class participation now? Come on, you guys awake? Let me hear you. Who's the living stone? Jesus, that's right. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Talked about that last week. Check this out. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down a few verses to verse 9. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the point, ready? Here's the point. Peter wants them to know you're a child of God, you're a living stone, and now he wants them to know you are a priest. You're a priest. Write it down somewhere on your notes. There's no blank for that. You're a priest. That's what he wants you to know, that you're a priest. And some of you are like, oh, dear, I'm a what? <laughs> some of you are like, I'm a long ways from being a priest. Some of you are like, my mama wanted me to grow up being a priest, but I didn't want to be a priest, right? Some of you, here's what you think when I say that. Here's the picture, because you grew up in a certain tradition. And when I say you're a priest, you think of a funny-looking guy who was single, wore his collar backward, lived at the church, and wasn't allowed to get married. That's what you think about. And you think, I didn't want to be that guy, right? Others of you, you grew up in a different tradition, and you think of a chubby little dude who always tied his tie too short, and his wife could play the piano. That's what you think of. And you think, I didn't want to be that guy, because you think to yourself, I didn't, some of you are like, is it okay to laugh at that? It is, okay? Because that's just the truth. But here's the deal. Some of you are like, I don't want me a preacher, I didn't sign up to be clergy. I don't want to be a reverend. I don't want to be a full-time minister, and I get that. But listen to me. Here's what Peter wants you to know, that if you said yes to Jesus, you're a priest. You're part of a priesthood. Now listen, here's why I need you to do hard work with me. If you'll, if you'll go with me for the next 30 minutes and you'll allow this to pop, listen close, it will change your life. I promise you, it will change your life and it will transform our church. You're like, Dan, how can you be so sure? Because it already has done that in church history. I promise you, this picture has already done that in church history. You're saying, Dan, when? How many of you have ever heard of this thing called the Reformation? Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, 16th century. It's called the Reformation. A guy named Martin Luther, 95 Thesis, nails it to the door, right? What is Martin Luther and the Reformers doing? They're simply challenging the institutional church namely the Roman Catholic Church and the papal office in response to what they saw as misuses and abuses by the institutional church. Now listen close, stay with me on this. I'm gonna take you down and we're gonna come back up for in a minute. But what came out of the 16th century, 1500s and beyond, what came out of the Reformation is some things that impact us right now, today. You need to know about them. They impact things that we believe right here. Can I tell you six? We're going to fly. Six. I threw the Latin words up here just so you'd be impressed, right? But the Latin words of the first five all start with sola, only. Sola scriptura. What's that mean? Out of the Reformation, the Reformers wanted the Pope and the, and the Catholic Church to know this, that the Bible alone, not man's tradition, the Bible alone is what gives instruction to the believers, we're not going to do things just because that's what man's tradition is, but we're going to follow the word of God. So it's the Bible alone, and, and salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That salvation isn't by works, isn't through penance, isn't me doing this or that, but it's through faith, by grace, in Christ, for the glory of God, period, alone. All that came out of the Reformation. But there's a sixth thing that Martin Luther wouldn't let go because he thought the Bible taught it. It's so clear in the Bible. Not only these five things, but he wanted the people to know the priesthood of all the believers. That there is no wall between the professional clergy and those who weren't. Literally, the Reformation broke down the wall and, and what, what Martin Luther and the Reformers wanted people to know was this, that everybody who said yes to Jesus was part of the priesthood of believers. How many of y'all in the room have ever, ever heard the word layman? 
I'm a layman, yeah. Listen close, listen to me. I'm gonna tell you this once. I hate that word. I hate that word. You're gonna find out later why I hate that word. Okay, if you're gonna use it, use it outside of my hearing. I don't like that word. I think it gives bad picture, bad connotation. I think it kind of runs right against the grain of the priesthood of all believers. Here's the deal. If you've said yes to Jesus, you're a priest. You're part of a priesthood. Now, here's the deal. Some of you are like, wow, man, I can't get my head around that. I mean, I don't feel like a priest. I don't look like what? How am I a priest? Okay, here's the deal. Class participation. You guys willing to do a little hard work with me? Say yes or no. That was not convincing. Are you willing? Listen, listen here. Now, we're going to have some fun. You willing to do some hard work with me? Yes or no? Yes. That's better. All right, and here's the deal. In order for you to understand this picture, we've got to do some hard work for a few minutes. I've got to take you somewhere in the Bible, okay? Got to take you somewhere, help you understand a part of your Bible that for some of you, you've already told me this, is difficult for you to understand. In fact, it's weird to you. A part of your Bible that's weird to you, and I get it. I totally get it. I've talked to some of you like, man, that's weird. I don't get it. It's hard for me to understand. It's this thing called the Old Testament. You got to understand some parts of the Old Testament in order to understand what Peter's saying. Can we do that for a minute? When you get to the Old Testament, let me just make it simple, broad, but I want you to get this. I've talked to people all morning. This will pop for you in a minute. When you get to the Old Testament, God has his chosen people, the nation of Israel. God has his chosen people, and he chooses them. Listen why he chooses them, to worship him and to represent him to the world. God has his chosen people to worship him and represent him to the world. So you can read about their history. Maybe you've heard of some of the people in their history. It starts with a guy named Abraham, Father Abraham, and then his sons. You ever heard that song? Rachel, you ever heard that song? Okay, that's, yeah, we won't sing anymore. But Father Abraham, clear back in Genesis. You go to the book of Exodus, you get this guy who led the people out of Egypt. His name was... Moses, right? All of a sudden, the Israelites are captive to the Egyptians. You watch the Disney movie, you saw it, right? But it's in the book of Exodus. It really happened. And when he led them through the Red Sea, all of a sudden, God did some things that when you read it in your Bible, you're like, man, I can't figure out why that's in there. It's so difficult. But he set up and established some things for them to practice so that, listen close, so that they could worship him, better understand their relationship with him, get a picture of what it meant to be in his presence. He set up some things so that they could better worship him because they're visual like you and I are, so that they could understand what it meant to be in a relationship with him and so that they could visualize what in the world does it mean to be in his presence. One of the things he set up was this thing called the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Now here's, just remember this. It's simply when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt and God sets this thing up, it's simply a tent, It's this tent, and he gives very specific instructions as to how he wants this tent to be. But this tent was going to represent the presence of God, was going to represent the place of worship as they traveled for 40 years in the wilderness. What I want you to know is this tent, this tabernacle, was simply a prototype of, of heaven itself. He just wanted them to get a visual. He just wanted them to understand visually this relationship they had. And this tabernacle, which was a mobile tent, became later in Israel's history this thing called the temple, right? Built by Solomon, a more permanent building. But what I want you to know for the sake of today, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, the tabernacle had three major areas. Three major areas. You see them up here. The first is the outer court. So in the tabernacle was this outer court where you would have had the place where the priest would have sacrificed on the altar of sacrifice. You'd have had the basin where they would have washed to purify and cleanse, right? That was the outer court. But then you would have walked in a little further into the tabernacle and you would have the place called the holy place, the holy place. And in the holy place, you would have had the lampstand. Stay with me on this. I'm begging you to stay with me. We're going somewhere. That had the lampstand and the priest's job, you know what it was? It was to keep the lamps burning. Keep the lamps burning. So the menorah, the, the, the lampstand was there and then there was the table of showbread. The table of showbread had 12 loaves of bread on it representing and the priest's job was to keep rotating them to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the outer court, you have the holy place. This is where the priests did their thing, keep the lampstands running, keep the showbread there. They would have offered sacrifices on the altar of sacrifice. But beyond the holy place, do you see it? Go there with me. There was a curtain. There's a line there. There's a curtain, a veil. This is gonna make some of the songs we sing about make sense in a minute. You with me? We're gonna make sense of some of the songs we sing about. This curtain right there at the holy place split the holy place from the place known as the Holy of Holies. 
What was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones, you know that whole deal? That was in the Holy of Holies. And the mercy seat. Well, who could go in the Holy of Holies? Not just anybody. Not just anybody. The priests, they're offering sacrifices to to God all year long. Daily sacrifices. But one time a year, one time a year, there was one guy who could go in there. His name was the high priest. And he could only go in where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat was, if he had the blood of the innocent animal. And he went in there to represent the people for the sake of the sins of the people. God set this up. There's nothing mystical, spooky about it. He wanted them to understand that, that when they came into his presence, they're coming into the presence of a holy God, and they were sinful people. This is serious business. This took the sacrifice of an innocent animal in order for that high priest to go in there. Guys, when you understand this, let that burn in your brain for a minute. All of a sudden, it will help you understand your New Testament, the part we, we, we like a little more sometimes. Because when you get to the New Testament, here's what it says in the book of Hebrews. So Christ has now become the, say it out loud, high priest. I just want to make sure I'm not losing you. Over all the good things that have come. He, Christ, has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle. There's a word we just talked about. In heaven, not made by human hands, not a part of this created world. And with his own blood, not blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time, and secured our redemption forever. Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Couple verses down, same chapter. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. That's what the tabernacle was. It was kind of a copy to give a visual, to understand, right? But he entered into heaven itself. Why? Because he's going to appear before God. Why? On our behalf. On our behalf. He didn't enter into heaven to offer himself again and again. That's what the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place did. Year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, I love this, once for all time, he, who, Jesus, high priest, has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. You go to the next chapter, chapter 10. Stay here with me. Under the old covenant. What's the old covenant? That's the stuff we're talking about in the Old Testament. Stuff like, I don't get that, right? Priest stands, ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again. Never can take away sins. Why? Because the sacrifices, get this, get this, the sacrifices that they were offering simply pointed ahead to the ultimate sacrifice that was coming. That's all they were doing was pointing ahead that God was going to send a sacrifice. He was going to send a Messiah. He was going to send somebody to rescue them. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins. Good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled, made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. What's the point? Write this in your notes. Let's make sense of it. The point is this. Jesus is my high priest. And as my high priest, he became my perfect sacrifice. He entered into the most holy place, the presence of God as the high priest to represent me for my sins. How did he do that? He brought a sacrifice. What was the sacrifice himself? He was the high priest who also was the perfect, sufficient, adequate, complete sacrifice for my sin. When he died on the cross, that was our high priest offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. What a picture. What an incredible picture. Guys, when that happened, look here a second. Man, we got to get this. When that happened, something happened. You read about it on Good Friday every year. You've read it, and maybe it's never made sense to you. I want it to pop right now. Because when Jesus died on the cross, you know that part. Something incredible happened. In Matthew 27, here's what it says. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Died. At that moment, what happens? 
the curtain of the temple, the veil, the veil torn from top to bottom. The veil that split the holy place from the holy of holies, it's, it's torn, listen to me, not from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. What's the significance? Somebody asked me after 8.30, what's the significance from top to bottom? I think God took that thing. He made the initiative and he ripped it open. That all of a sudden when Jesus died in my place and I acknowledge that he is my perfect sacrifice, I not only become a child of God, a living stone, but I become a part of this royal priesthood. What a picture. And as a part of this royal priesthood, there are some fascinating implications fascinating implications that I want you to get this morning. Three in particular. I want you to write them down. First is this. As a priest, I, you, we have direct access to God. As a priest and because of what Jesus, our high priest, did, we can enter the most holy place. Curtains have been torn. Jesus ushers us in there. Because of my identity as a priest, it enables me to go where others have longed to go. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, listen, have you ever had access somewhere where others didn't have access? Do you ever have that privilege? It's kind of a cool, it's kind of a cool experience, right? I had that experience once. I think it was last year in the fall. My, my youngest son, Aaron, was invited to something pretty cool. He was invited by some of the staff at Ohio State to come to a game and enjoy a game. He was encouraged to invite two friends. I would befriend one and his big brother, who's not as big as him, but his big brother, older brother, was friend too. And here's how it went. I wasn't really sure at first. I'm like, is this really true? You know, what's going to happen? But they had invited him to come and they said, all you got to do is go to gate so-and-so and tell him your name and we'll take care of the rest. I remember thinking to myself, if this is a total bust, at least I get five hours with my boys. That's worth it, right? And so we drove down to Columbus, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know. This would be kind of cool, but let's see what happens. And so we drive there. We walk around outside. We wanted it to look like we knew what we were doing. We had no idea what we were doing, right? We're looking for this gate, and we're thinking to ourselves, man, I hope somebody there knows what's going on, and we find the gate. We find the gate, and there's a gal there with the clipboard. We're like, okay, here we go. Aaron, you're the guy. They invited you, man. And he went up there, and he said, hey, my name's Aaron Gregory. She said, I've been expecting you. And he said, these are my two friends, (laughs) you know? And then she gave us this really cool thing. I remember she gave us this. I'll never wear something like this again in church, but it's an Ohio State lanyard is what I got on. (laughs) Get your picture now. I'm just saying. We took that lanyard, and she put it around our neck, and she said, go right in. I'm like, right in there? Right in there, she said. And I remember we walked in where the players would walk out, and all of a sudden they took us into what I would call the bowels of the stadium, right into the park nobody else gets to see. We walked up some steps, over some places, and all of a sudden we walked into this room, and this room had all kinds of cool stuff. It, it kind of celebrating the national championships that Ohio State had won. It celebrated all their Heisman Trophy winners. It, it also listed all the times they lost to Penn State. No, it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't say that. It didn't say that. I wish it had, but it didn't say that. I didn't tell anybody I was a Penn State fan that day. I was like, whoa, man. I'm just, but, but I remember they sat us at tables, and, and, and we had lunch together. My oldest boy, Joel, he was so excited. You ask him about it. He preached a couple weeks ago. Ask him. He was so excited. He didn't need a thing. He didn't need a thing. He's like, Joel, why don't you eat something? He's like, I'm so excited. This is so cool, right? But we were in this place, and people were talking to us. We're watching highlights of Ohio State football. I'm like, wow, this is cool. We ate our lunch, and they said, you guys ready to go? I'm like, yeah, go where? I'm like, go home? No, no, go down this tunnel. We went down this tunnel, the same tunnel the players walked out, the same exact place the players walked out, and we walked out right into the middle of the field. We're right into the middle of the field, and as the players are warming up, we are literally this far from the players that are warming up. I'm that far from Bosa. That dude is big. I'm telling you that much. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe this. Why? Because I got this. They just simply looked and said, do you got this? Yep, I got this. And I kept walking. I remember looking up in the stands where all the people sat, where I used to sit, and I'm thinking, y'all chumps, man. I'm down here. Look at me, you know? I mean, I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I know my boys couldn't believe it. I mean, we got down on that field. We took some selfies. I mean, stuff like that. Throw that picture out there. Look at that. We're right in the end zone. They took us from that spot, and they said, we got some seats for you. Oh, man, I'm heading back up where I usually sit. No, no, we sat right behind Ohio State's bench. We could hear the coaches talking. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. How can we sit here? Got the pass. Just show the pass. 
At halftime, everybody else went to the concession stands. We didn't. They said, you got the pass? Yep. Walk across the field, back up that tunnel. We got some drinks for y'all up there. Like, really? Yeah, just show the pass. After halftime, we came back down, watched the second half of the game. The game ended. Everybody else is leaving. They're going to their cars. Y'all want to walk across the field to go home? I'm like, you're kidding me. Why? Because I got the pass. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen. If I've said yes to Jesus, I got the pass. I got the pass of a priest. It literally has the blood of Christ on it. And that pass gets me access into the presence of the Almighty, the King of kings, the creator, the one who knows everything, sees everything, the one for whom nothing is impossible. I have direct access to God because of Jesus. I got the pass. I'm with Christ. That's what it means to be part of the royal priesthood. It's amazing when you think about the fact that the veil was torn. And part of the Reformation, some of you need to know this, part of the Reformation, and part of what came out of the Reformation was this, I don't need somebody going and talking to God for me. I got Jesus. I don't need to go to somebody and confess my sins to them so that I I got Jesus I got direct access to God. Now listen, some of y'all, I can see it in your eyes. You've been in church too long. You're like, can I do that? Yeah, you've been in church. Because you know something, you're like, that's kind of cool. We got direct access to God. And it's lost its buzz. It's lost its pop. It's lost its power. Can I give you some suggestions? Can I do that this morning? You with me? I'd suggest one thing, maybe two things. I'd actually suggest three things. First, I'd suggest you slow down. You slow down. Write it down somewhere on your notes. I'd suggest you slow down. Slow down to begin to realize the privilege and the opportunity to literally come into the presence where kings in the Old Testament could not go. You, as part of the priesthood, had the opportunity to go. Guys, it makes me think of a story. A story of a guy named Joshua Bell. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Joshua Bell. You know who I'm talking about. Raise it high. I want to see who I'm talking to. Two of you, three of you. I love it, right? I love it. Joshua Bell, let me tell you about Joshua Bell. He is one of the world's best, most renowned violinists. Plays in concert halls, they're sold out. People pay hundreds of dollars just to hear him play. Hundreds of dollars, always sold out. 2007, Washington Post wants to do an experiment. They want to do an experiment, and the experiment is this. Three days after... Some of you know what I'm talking about. Three days after he played in a very full Boston Symphony Hall, they want to place him in Washington, D.C. at a metro stop at the corner. And they want to see how many people might notice this world-renowned violinist playing on his special violin, which was worth, ready, $3.5 million dollars. He had agreed to do it, and he had agreed to play for 43 minutes straight, six classical pieces. The Washington Post set things up. Joshua Bell got there, set up his spot at the metro stop. He laid open his case to the violin. He seated the case with a couple bucks, and he began playing. During that 43 minutes, about 1,107 people walked by Joshua Bell. About 1,107 people walked by shoulder to shoulder with a guy that people paid hundreds of dollars just to get in the hall to hear as he played these pieces and as, as, as beautifully as he did in the Boston Symphony Hall. And it was amazing what they found because what they found in those 43 minutes, listen close, they found that, listen, of those 1,107 people, only seven stopped and paid any mind whatsoever. Here they had this privilege that people paid hundreds of dollars to enjoy. And they walked by, many with their headphones in. Many would just talk and walk by and think, well, there's a beggar. And they'd flip a dime or they'd flip a quarter into his case. Uh, 1,100 people would walk by this thing, not recognizing the value, the opportunity, the incredible experience that was theirs for the taking. There was one gal. That, that one gal's name was Stacy. And Stacy, as she walked by, she stopped. And here's what it says. She was in awe and she just listened. Why? Because she knew who he was and she had heard him before. She was shocked that people ran by and placed pocket change in his case. 
She couldn't believe people weren't taking advantage of this opportunity. So she simply stood and admired and appreciated the moment. She couldn't help but slow down. And then she said this, I quote, it was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell standing there playing at rush hour and people not stopping, not even looking and just flipping some quarters at him. Quarters, I wouldn't even do that for anybody. I was thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of a city do I live in that this could happen? Why did she stop? Listen, she knew him and she recognized his music. Listen, listen, you know what Jesus says? You know what Jesus says? He says, my sheep know me and they recognize my voice. My sheep know me and they recognize my voice. You see, you and I have direct access into the most holy place, into the presence of God, into this relationship with God. And for me, it's, it's simply slowing down long enough to say, you have got to be kidding me. For me, this last week, I took a day where I just said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in this spot because I want to acknowledge, realize, let it pop in my life that I'm literally talking to the one who spoke it all into existence. I'm talking to the one who sees all, knows all. I'm talking to the one who loves me more than I understand to allow that to somehow resonate and ignite in my heart. I gotta slow down, but you know something else? I gotta stay connected. I gotta stay connected. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 17 says, pray continually. Pray all the time is what it's saying. Pray continually. Take the opportunity to stay connected in this conversation, relationship with God. Makes me think of another story I read this week. There's a story relayed by a guy named Eric Geiger. Most people are like, I have no idea who that is. Some of you might recognize the name. But he lived in Miami, 2006. In Miami in 2006, the Miami Heat were in the NBA Finals. Now I've got some of you, right? And they were playing the Dallas Mavericks. He was a big Miami Heat fan, and so one of his friends had season tickets. Invited him to go to Game 4. He took him up on the invitation, went to Game 4. They were okay seats. He remembers taking his binoculars with him because in order to see what was going on in the court, he had to use his binoculars. He remembers at one point in the game pulling out those binoculars and looking down to see what was going on on the, on the floor, and all of a sudden he spotted right there, floor seats, one of his best friends. He's like, you got to be kidding me. His feet are literally on the court. How in the world did he get those seats? The next day he saw his best friend. He's like, man, I was at the game too. He's like, you're kidding me. I can't believe the seats you have. He says, it's incredible. Your feet are on the court. Man, it must be wild to watch the game right there. You can see it all happening right in front of you. Sunday night came and game five was Sunday night. Eric Geiger remembers that night, Sunday night, he was with his wife in his home watching game five, Miami Heat, Dallas Mavericks on his, get this, I'm gonna say it, make sure you understand it. Some of y'all are too young to think this even existed. A 19 inch television set in his living room. Yes, they did have those. And he remembers watching the game with his wife thinking, oh, how cool it would be to watch this live and in person. He watched the game, and that night went to bed. Monday, got up and went to the office. He did what he, he did every Monday morning when he got to the office. He got his coffee. He got set up. He goes, and he turns his computer on. Technology's come a long way since then. Turns his computer on, and he pulls up his email, because every Monday morning, about 8 o'clock, he checks his email. As soon as he pulls up his email, all of a sudden, he lets out a loud scream and felt, what's wrong? What's wrong? He says, I can't believe I just received an email from my friend yesterday inviting me to go to the game and sit courtside with him, and I missed it because it's Monday. Game's already over. You see, why do I tell you that? Because sometimes we approach prayer the same way we approach checking our email. I check it Monday, maybe Wednesday. I'll check in Friday. I'll pray when I get up before a meal, before I go to bed, and if I'm really feeling good, maybe at church. But here's what Paul says. I want you to stay connected. I don't want you to miss anything. I want you to stay connected. Guys, listen to me. What if, what if your car was your most holy place? What if your tree stand was your most holy place? What, what if your bed, when you, when you lay down in your bed, was, was, was your most holy place? What if the place where you work, you're living, whatever, what if that was your most holy place? See, Paul says stay connected. Slow down. But then Jesus taught us something. That's this. You ought to write this down. He said, keep it real. He said, don't try to fake me out. You don't need to come into the most holy place and impress God. He already knows. Keep it real. 
He's not looking for you to impress him. He's looking for you to confess to him. He already knows the junk. It's like, well, I'm going to impress him. Maybe he won't realize what I've been up to. He wants you to come and just agree with him. He doesn't want you to come and say, everything's cool. All right, man, I got this memorized prayer. He wants you to come and cast your anxiety, count your blessings, cry your pain, whatever it might be. He says, keep it real. Why? Because you have direct access to God. As a priest, I have direct access to God. There's something else that's really, really important. I want you to write it down. As a priest, as a priest, I do the work of God. As a priest, I do the work of God. Not only do I have direct access, but I do the very work of God. Here's the way Peter says it. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is another result of Martin Luther and the Reformers. The Reformation is that the clergy or the pastors were not the ones who simply did the work of God. In fact, listen, listen, listen close. If pastors, okay, I'm part of a pastoral team. I think there's seven or eight of us. I, I have to count them in my head. But, but wonderful guy. We love serving. I love being one of your pastors. Love that. But if pastors were the only one who did the work of God or the work of the church, listen close, I'm going to tell you something might, might cause you to scratch your head. If, if they were the only ones that did that, they would never do what God called them to do. You're like, really? Yes. You're like, where are you getting that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 4. Christ gave, himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to do all the work in the church so that nobody would have anything to do so that they could come and hear them preach and say, good job, every Sunday. Is that what your version says? If it does, get a new version. That's the new heretical version. Why did he give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? Will you read the underlined part with me out loud with gusto like an Ohio State fan? To equip his people for works of service. Let me put it real simple. We're going to talk about this in two weeks. If somebody said, Dan, can you describe for me, I didn't grow up in church, what you do, you know what I would say to them? I coach. If they didn't, like, I don't understand pastor and all that stuff. What do you do? I said, coach, my job is to equip God's people for works of service. I want to equip people who have said yes to Jesus to realize that they're part of this priesthood. I, I get asked all the time, you know, what, what do you do? I said this in last service. I want to say it to you because it seemed like I needed to last service. Um, last week, I told you, let's change our relationship a little bit. Let's change it a little more. My name is Dan. You can call me Dan. If you don't feel comfortable, that's fine. If you need to call me Pastor Dan, I'm fine. I'm not going to hold it against you, but you do not have to. Pastor is what I do. My name is Dan. I don't call you Mailman Joe, okay? You see, see how that works? Dentist Mike. I don't do that. Like, that's not what I do. So, so you can call me Dan. That's what I do. But people ask me, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And I say, oh, you do the work of the church. You do the work of God. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, kind of, but, 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 but not totally. What my job is, I equip people so that they can also do the work of the church and the work of God. You see, how does that work? Throw the picture back up there. Let's go. Let's get this, okay? Remember the Old Testament picture? That curtain into the Holy Holies, boom, gone. Jesus died, thing ripped top to bottom, I have direct access to God. But now I'm part of the royal priesthood. I now do what priests do. You're like, I do? Yeah. I keep the lampstand burning. You're like, I do? I haven't lit a candle in years. No, listen to me. What did Jesus say? Listen, make it pop. He said, you're the light of the world. You don't take a light and put it under a bushel. Remember that little song you used to sing? Don't do that. You don't blow it up. You, you let your light, the light of your life shine. Why? Because it points to the one who is the light of the world. Why? Because we live in a world of darkness and they need the light of hope. I put bread out on the table. Why? Well, do you remember the story of Jesus in John 6? He has his disciples and about 20,000 people and he feeds 20,000 people with a few loaves and fish. And then he says, okay, collect all the, the leftovers, and they collected how many baskets full? Twelve. <laughs> was that just a cool story? It's like, wow, Jesus, man, I want to hang out with him for lunch. Is that what that was for? No, because later in the chapter he said, I want you to know the bigger deal is that I am the bread of life. I am a priest who does the work of God. I keep my light a burning, and I make sure the bread is available for a world that is hungry, can't figure out how to fill what's empty inside of themselves. What's going to fill them? Bread of life. Only one that's going to satisfy. See how that works? 
I'm a priest. I keep the light burning. I make sure the bread's out. But not only that, I offer, ready, ready? I offer sacrifices to God. And you're like, oh, man, hide the dog. I didn't know we did that, okay? What? What kind of sacrifices do we offer? Stay with me. I want to help you with this. In the Old Testament, you ready? They offered dead sacrifices. They took live animals and they killed them. Why? Because they were pointing ahead to a time when the sacrifice that would be provided for them would die in their place. So therefore, the sacrifices they offered were dead. They were dead sacrifices. But we don't offer dead sacrifices. We offer living sacrifices. Why? Because we don't point ahead. We point back to Jesus who already died and is alive. He died and is alive. Therefore, we offer living sacrifices to him. And the living sacrifices point back to Jesus. You're like, what are those sacrifices? Hebrews chapter 13 says this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Listen, listen. Every time I sing a song that points to Jesus and what he's done, I point back to what he did. He died and is alive. Every time I share my story about what he's done in my life and changed me, I point back to what he did. He died and is alive. Verse 16 says this, and don't forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. What's he saying? He's saying every time I'm kind to others, as a result of what he did for me, I point back to his kindness seen at the cross. Every time I'm generous to others, I point back to his generosity at the cross. Every time I sacrifice and serve the uh, the needs of others, I point back to his sacrifice and service for me. Every time I forgive others, I point back to how he forgave me at the cross. Every time I invest my time, my treasure, my talent, I point back to what he did for me. He made the investment that changed my life. Guys, if that pops, it changed your life. Every time, some of you are involved here at at Grace Church. Let me put some skin on it. Every time I show up Thursday and hold a meeting for people who have been struggling all their life with addiction, I literally am pointing back to the one who showed up and did that for me. Every time I I sit somebody in my dentist chair and I share with them when they can't talk back, by the way, like, ah, like that, you're talking to them the whole time, and I share with them the goodness of God in my life, I'm pointing back to what he did for me. Every time some of y'all hold a baby downstairs in the nursery so a mama can come up here and worship and hear without being distracted, you literally are offering a sacrifice of kindness and investing. Every time you invest in a teenager, every time you open your house for your grace group to come in, you're, you're offering a, a live sacrifice. Every time you sing, play your instrument up here, every time. It's a living sacrifice. Why? Because Paul said in Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Not dead ones. We're living sacrifices pointing back to a Jesus, a Savior who died and is alive. That's wholly pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You are a royal, holy priesthood. Your life is a living sacrifice, every component of it, given as a sacrifice to God. That's why I hate, I hate the word lay people. I don't like it. If you want to use it, it's fine. I don't like it. You know why? It almost sounds like there's first class, second class citizens. And think about the word lay people. What do lay people do? I don't know. They lay back while somebody else does the work. Listen to me. Ain't no lay people about it. You are a priest of the king. You are a priest set apart, chosen by God, if you've said yes to Jesus. Direct access to God, doing the work of God, which leads to something Paul said. I can't leave. We're going to land the plane in in about two seconds. Go with me here. But he says in Romans 15, Yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Why? 
so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's like part of my priestly duty is to be able to proclaim the gospel, and part of my sacrifice is every time somebody says yes to Jesus, it's like, wow, we're going to baptize people Friday night. Woo! Pretty cool, right? I think that's why Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. You're chosen people, royal priesthood, holy set-apart nation, special possessions. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Remember this, once you were not a people, but you are now. Once you had not received mercy, don't forget that, but you have now. What a powerful statement. What's Peter trying to say? As a priest, I have direct access. As a priest, I do the work of God. And as a priest, I declare the truth about God to a world that desperately needs to hear. To a world that desperately needs to hear. I'm chosen by God, set apart by God to declare the truth about God. What's interesting to me is some of you, I talked to a, a guy earlier today, he, he grew up and when he was in elementary school, he, he learned Latin. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. How many of you learned Latin as kids? Anybody? One, two, okay. Um, that's interesting, but I, I found it interesting when you take the word priest and you drill it back into its Latin, it comes from a word that means, stay with me on this, because this popped for me, bridge builder, bridge builder. A priest was a bridge builder. Guys, as priests, as part of the royal priesthood, we build bridges. We build bridges for people to the high priest, who's Jesus, introducing them to the one who can escort them into a relationship with God, into the only one who can forgive them of their sins through Christ, into direct access with the Almighty. We become a bridge to declare to them the truth about God. Why? Because some of our neighbors, some of our friends, some of our family don't know the truth about a God who, through the gospel in Christ Jesus, has extended mercy to them. Some of the people that you know that you hang out with them, they're trying their darndest to try to work hard so that God's going to be okay with them, and you're a bridge builder to let them know, no, 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 I need to tell you about the gospel, that there's Jesus, he's the high priest, and he is the adequate, perfect, complete sacrifice. That's what priests do. Peter wants them to remember, you are a royal priesthood. Don't put your stuff away. I can, you can't. I want you to stay with me. I want to ask you some questions in in two minutes' time, and then we're done. I absolutely love you guys. I, I think about you guys all week long. I pray for you. I love being one of your pastors. I want to ask you something. I want to ask you, has there ever been a time in your life when you've recognized that Jesus is your high priest who was your perfect sacrifice? Oh, don't answer too quick. I didn't ask if you come to church. I didn't ask if you know a lot about the Bible, maybe more than me and all the pastors put together. I don't know. I didn't even ask if you were a good person. I asked, has there been a time in your life when you said, yes, Jesus, I believe you're the high priest who was my perfect sacrifice, who went before the presence of God with your own blood, shed in my place for my sin, and said, yes, you're my Savior. You're the one that I'm going to trust for the salvation of my soul. Ever done that? See, that's the most important decision you ever make in your life. You can go to church till kingdom come. But it's all about saying yes to Jesus. That's the only, that's the only access to God. That's the only access to God. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're like, I've done that. I'm glad. Can I tell you this? If you've said yes to Jesus, you're a priest. Like you might have come in here and you might have thought you were a lot of things this morning. I want to tell you this. You're a priest. You're part of a royal priesthood not wearing funny collars and all that kind of stuff, but you have direct access to God. Can I ask you this? Have you slowed down long enough to appreciate the fact that you get a chance to talk to the one who spoke it all into existence, the one who sees all, knows all, for whom nothing is impossible, the one who loves you more than you realize? Have you stayed connected? Are you keeping it real? Let me ask you this. If you're here and you're a priest, have you ever stopped to realize that you're a priest doing the work of God? that you're offering sacrifices to God, that some of you that right now are active and involved, maybe you're doing a lot of things, but you don't know why you're doing them. Well, let me tell you why you're doing them, because you're a priest, and you do the work of God. 
And what you're doing right now is a living sacrifice, pointing back to the one who died and is alive, pointing back every time you give, share, greet somebody at the door, every time you walk with somebody into the parking lot, every time you make coffee, every time you run the meeting, every time you give your offering, I'm like, boom, boom, boom. Every time in your neighborhood you speak his name, every time at work you share with somebody about the goodness of God in your life, every time you take the chance to tell how the gospel has changed your life, boom, boom. Every time you visit somebody in the hospital who's sick, every time you take a meal to the person who needs it, boom, boom. Why? Because you're a royal priesthood. Guys, I don't know a, a fancy way to put this. If that ignites in half of our hearts, it will change this church. It will change this church. You are a royal priesthood. Last question, then I'm done. I'll pray. If I am a priest... That means I'm a bridge builder. Who are the people in your life who need to walk across the bridge and meet Jesus because they know you? The people you work with, live beside in your family. Who are the people right now that are in your life that don't know the hope and the grace and the love found in Christ for whatever reason? Maybe they've never been to church. Maybe they've been to church and they just yelled at them. I don't know. But you're in their life for a reason and you're a priest and you're a bridge builder. What would it be for you Because now you know who you are to be that bridge that points them to the one. The one who is the light of the world. The one who is the bread of life. The one who is the high priest. Who is the perfect, sufficient, adequate, complete, once for all sacrifice for their sins. Who wants to extend mercy. So Father, I pray. I just, I love this picture. I pray that somehow it would ignite in this place. I love my friends every week I get a chance to talk to. I I love the fact that you allow us to come into this space. And some of them are sitting here and they've never said yes to Jesus. They thought they had to work for it. They thought, as the guy told me after 10, man, they've just done too much. I pray that this picture would help them see that Jesus paid the complete price for everything I've done every regret, everything I'm ashamed of, everything I've tried to hide, everything I've tried to work my way out of, Jesus paid once for all, complete, done at the cross. God, I don't know about my friends in this room, but I'll just say in in their presence, please forgive me, I'm almost so busy I don't slow down to recognize the privilege of walking into the king's throne room and speaking to you. God, I pray that you would help me to slow down and appreciate and recognize, to stay connected, to keep it real. God, I pray that as I leave this place, even what I do the next hour, the rest of today, help me to live as a living sacrifice, offering sacrifices. I pray that you'd help me to keep my light burning and to keep offering the bread of life to people who are hungry in my life. Thank you for purposefully putting me in people's lives who don't know Jesus. And I pray that I would be part of the royal priesthood, simply building a bridge so that they might meet the one who can save them, Jesus, not me, Jesus, because he was their perfect sacrifice. I love you. And I thank you for the power of your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name.